international short stories volume two english stories this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org international short stories volume two english stories edited by william patton section six the brothers a tale by Edward Bulwer Lytton, Part Two. But Otho, striving to appease his conscience with the belief that hers now was the sole fault, busied himself in preparations for his departure. Anxious to outshine his brother, he departed not as Warbeck, alone and unattended, but levying all the horse, men, and money that his domain of Sternfels, which he had not yet tenanted, would afford. He repaired to Frankfurt at the head of a glittering troop. The Templar, affecting a relapse, tarried behind and promised to join him at that Constantinople of which he had so loudly boasted. Meanwhile, he devoted his whole powers of pleasing to console the unhappy orphan. The force of her simple love was, however, stronger than all his arts. In vain he insinuated doubts of Otho. She refused to hear them. In vain he poured with the softest accents into her ear the witchery of flattery and song. She turned heedlessly away, and only pained by the courtesies that had so little resemblance to Otho. She shut herself up in her chamber, and pined in solitude for her forsaken. The Templar now resolved to attempt darker arts to obtain power over her when fortunately he was summoned suddenly away by a mission from the grand master of so high import that it could not be resisted by a passion stronger in his breast than love the passion of ambition he left the castle to its solitude and otho peopling it no more with his gay companions no solitude could be more unfrequently disturbed meanwhile though ever and anon the fame of warbeck reached their ears it came unaccompanied with that of Otho. Of him they had no tidings, and thus the love of the tender orphan was kept alive by the perpetual restlessness of fear. At length the old chief died, and Leoline was left utterly alone. One evening, as she sat with her maidens in the hall, the ringing of a steed's hoofs were heard in the outer court. A horn sounded the heavy gates were unbarred and a knight of a stately mane and covered with a mantle of the cross entered the hall he stopped for one moment at the entrance as if overpowered by his emotion in the next he had clasped leoline to his breast dost thou not recognize thy cousin warbeck he doffed his casque and she saw that majestic brow which unlike otho's had never changed or been clouded in its aspect to her the war is suspended for the present said he i learned my father's death and i have returned home to hang up my banner in the hall and spend my days in peace time and the life of camps had worked their change upon warbeck's face the fair hair deepened in its shade was worn from the temples and disclosed one scar that rather aided the beauty of a countenance that had always something high and martial in its character but the calm it had once worn had settled down into sadness. He conversed more rarely than before, and though he smiled not less often nor less kindly, the smile had more of thought, and the kindness had forgot its passion. 
he had apparently conquered a love that was so early crossed but not that fidelity of remembrance which made leoline dearer to him than all others and forbade him to replace the images he had graven upon his soul the orphan's lips trembled with the name of otho but a certain recollection stifled even her anxiety warbeck hastened to forestall her questions otho was well he said and sojourning at constantinople he had lingered there so long that the crusade had terminated without his aid doubtless now he would speedily return a month a week nay a day might restore him to her side leoline was inexpressibly consoled yet something remained untold why so eager for the strife of the sacred tomb had he thus tarried at constantinople she wondered she wearied conjecture but she did not dare to search farther the generous warbeck concealed from her that otho led a life of the most reckless and indolent dissipations wasting his wealth in the pleasures of the greek court and only occupying his ambition with the wild schemes of founding a principality in those foreign climes which the enterprises of the norman adventurers had rendered so alluring to the knightly bandits of the age the cousins resumed their old friendship and warbeck believed that it was friendship alone they walked again among the gardens in which their childhood had strayed they sat again on the green turf whereon they had woven flowers they looked down on the eternal mirror of the rhine ah could it have reflected the same unawakened freshness of their life's early spring the grave and contemplative mind of warbeck had not been so contented with the honors of war but that it had sought also those calmer sources of emotion which were yet found amongst the sages of the east he had drunk at the fountain of the wisdom of those distant climes and had acquired the habits of meditation which were indulged by those wiser tribes from which the crusaders brought back to the north the knowledge that was destined to enlighten their posterity warbeck therefore had little in common with the ruder chiefs around he did not summon them to his board nor attend at their noisy wassails often late at night in yon shattered tower his lonely lamp shone still over the mighty stream and his only relief to loneliness was in the presence and the song of his soft cousin months rolled on when suddenly a vague and fearful rumor reached the castle of liebenstein otho was returning home to the neighboring tower of sternfels but not alone he brought back with him a greek bride of surprising beauty endowered with almost regal wealth leoline was the first to discredit the rumor leoline was soon the only one who disbelieved bright in the summer noon flashed the array of horsemen far up the steep ascent wound the gorgeous cavalcade the lonely towers of liebenstein heard the echo of many a laugh and peal of merriment otho bore home his bride to the halls of sternfels that night there was a great banquet in otho's castle the light shone from every casement and music swelled loud and ceaselessly within by the side of otho glittering with the prodigal jewels of the east sat the greek her dark locks her flashing eye the false colors of her complexion dazzled the eyes of her guests on her left hand sat the templar by the holy rood quoth the templar gaily though he crossed himself as he spoke we shall scare the owls to-night on those grim towers of liebenstein 
Thy grave brother, Sir Otho, will have much to do to comfort his cousin when she sees what a gallant life she would have led with thee. Poor damsel, said the Greek, with affected pity, doubtless she will now be reconciled to the rejected one. I hear he is a knight of a comely mane. Peace, said Otho sternly, and quaffing a large goblet of wine. The Greek bit her lip and glanced meaningly at the Templar, who returned the glance. Naught but a beauty such as thine can win my pardon, said Otho, turning to his bride and gazing passionately in her face. The Greek smiled. Well sped the feast. The laugh deepened, the wine circled, when Otho's eyes rested on a guest at the bottom of the board, whose figure was mantled from head to foot, and whose face was covered by a dark veil. Beshrew me, said he aloud, but this is scarce courteous at our revel. Will the stranger vouchsafe to unmask? These words turned all eyes to the figure, and they who sat next it perceived that it trembled violently. At length it rose, and walking slowly but with grace to the fair Greek, it laid beside her a wreath of flowers. It is a simple gift, lady, said the stranger, in a voice of such sweetness that the rudest guest was touched by it. But it is all I can offer, and the bride of Otho should not be without a gift at my hands. May ye both be happy. And with these words the stranger turned and passed from the hall, silent as a shadow. Bring back the stranger, cried the Greek, recovering her surprise. Twenty guests sprang up to obey her mandate. No, no, said Otho, waving his hand impatiently. Touch her not, heed her not, at your peril. The Greek bent over the flowers to conceal her anger, and from amongst them dropped the broken half of a ring. Otho recognized it at once. It was the broken half of that ring which he had broken with his betrothed. Alas! He required not such a sign to convince him that figure, so full of ineffable grace, that touching voice, that simple action so tender in its sentiment, that gift, that blessing, came only from the forsaken and forgiving Leoline. But Warbeck, alone in his solitary tower, paced to and fro with agitated steps. Deep, undying wrath at his brother's falsehood, mingled with one burning, one delicious hope. He confessed now that he had deceived himself, when he thought his passion was no more. Was there any longer a bar to his union with Leoline? In that delicacy which was breathed into him by his love, he had forborne to seek or to offer her the insult of consolation. He felt that the shock should be borne alone, and yet he pined, he thirsted, to throw himself at her feet. Nursing these contending thoughts, he was aroused by a knock at his door. He opened it. The passage was thronged by Leoline's maidens, pale, anxious, weeping. Leoline had left the castle with but one female attendant, none knew whither. They knew too soon. From the hall of Sternfels she had passed over in the dark and inclement night to the valley in which the convent of Bornhofen offered to the weary of spirit and the broken of heart a refuge at the shrine of God. At daybreak the next morning Warbeck was at the convent's gate. He saw Leoline. What a change one night of suffering had made in that face which was the fountain of all loveliness to him. He clasped her in his arms. He wept. He urged all that love could urge. He besought her to accept that heart which had never wronged her memory by a thought. 
o leoline didst thou not say once that these arms nursed thy childhood that this voice soothed thine early sorrows ah trust to them again and forever from a love that forsook thee turn to the love that never swerved no said leoline no what would the chivalry of which thou art the boast what would they say of thee wert thou to wed one affianced and deserted who tarried years for another and brought to thine arms only that heart which he had abandoned no and even if thou as i know thou wouldst be wert callous to such wrong of thy high name shall i bring to thee a broken heart and bruised spirit shalt thou wed sorrow and not joy and shall sighs that will not cease and tears that may not be dried be the only dowry of thy bride thou too for whom all blessings should be ordained no forget me forget thy poor leoline she hath nothing but prayers for thee in vain warbeck pleaded in vain he urged all that passion and truth could urge the springs of earthly love were forever dried up in the orphan's heart and her resolution was immovable she tore herself from his arms and the gate of the convent creaked harshly on his ear a new and stern emotion now wholly possessed him though naturally mild and gentle he cherished anger when once it was aroused with the strength of a calm mind leoline's tears her sufferings her wrongs her uncomplaining spirit the change already stamped upon her face all cried aloud to him for vengeance she is an orphan said he bitterly she hath none to protect to redress her save me alone my father's charge over her forlorn youth descends of right to me what matters it whether her forsaker be my brother he is her foe hath he not crushed her heart hath he not consigned her to sorrow till the grave and with what insult no warning no excuse with lewd wassailers keeping revel for his new bridles in the hearing before the sight of his betrothed enough the time hath come when to use his own words one of us two must fall he half drew his sword as he spoke and thrusting it back violently into the sheath strode home to his solitary castle the sound of steeds and of the hunting horn met him at his portal the bridal train of sternfells all mirth and gladness were parting for the chase that evening a knight in complete armor entered the banquet hall of sternfells and defied otho on the part of warbeck of liebenstein to mortal combat even the templar was startled by so unnatural a challenge but otho reddening took up the gauge and the day and spot were fixed discontented wroth with himself a savage gladness seized him he longed to wreak his desperate feelings even on his brother nor had he ever in his jealous heart forgiven that brother his virtues and his renown at the appointed hour the brothers met as foes warbeck's visor was up and all the settled sternness of his soul was stamped upon his brow but Otho, more willing to brave the arm than to face the front of his brother, kept his visor down. The Templar stood by him with folded arms. It was a study in human passions to his mocking mind. Scarce had the first trump sounded to this dread conflict when a new actor entered on the scene. The rumor of so unprecedented an event had not failed to reach the convent of Bornhofen, and now, two by two, came the sisters of the holy shrine 
and the armed men made way as with trailing garments and veiled faces they swept along into the very lists at that moment one from amongst them left her sisters with a slow majestic pace and paused not till she stood right between the brother foes warbeck she said in a hollow voice that curdled up his dark spirit as it spoke is it thus thou wouldst prove thy love and maintain thy trust over the fatherless orphan whom thy sire bequeathed to thy care shall i have murder on my soul at that question she paused and those who heard it were struck dumb and shuddered the murder of one man by the hand of his own brother away warbeck i command shall i forget thy wrongs leoline said warbeck wrongs they united me to god they are forgiven they are no more earth has deserted me but heaven hath taken me to its arms shall i murmur at the change and thou otho here her voice faltered thou dost thy conscience smite thee not wouldst thou atone for robbing me of hope by barring against me the future wretch that i should be could i dream of mercy could i dream of comfort if thy brother fell by thy sword in my cause otho i have pardoned thee and blessed thee and thine once perhaps thou didst love me remember how i loved thee cast down thine arms otho gazed at the veiled form before him where had the soft leoline learned to command he turned to his brother he felt all that he had inflicted upon both and casting his sword upon the ground he knelt at the feet of leoline and kissed her garment with a devotion that votary never lavished on a holier saint the spell that lay over the warriors around was broken there was one loud cry of congratulation and joy and thou warbeck said leoline turning to the spot where still motionless and haughty warbeck stood have i ever rebelled against thy will said he softly and buried the point of his sword in the earth yet leoline yet he added looking at his kneeling brother yet art thou already better avenged than by this steel thou art thou art cried otho smiting his breast and slowly and scarce noting the crowd that fell back from his path warbeck left the lists leoline said no more her divine errand was fulfilled she looked long and wistfully after the stately form of the knight of liebenstein and then with a slight sigh she turned to otho this is the last time we shall meet on earth peace be with us all she then with the same majestic and collected bearing passed on toward the sisterhood and as in the same solemn procession they glided back toward the convent there was not a man present no not even the hardened templar who would not like otho have bent his knee to leoline once more otho plunged into the wild reveille of the age his castle was thronged with guests and night after night the lighted hall shone down thwart the tranquil rhine the beauty of the greek the wealth of otto the fame of the templar attracted all the chivalry from far and near never had the banks of the rhine known so hospitable a lord as the knight of sternfels yet gloom seized him in the midst of gladness and the revel was welcome only as the escape from remorse the voice of scandal however soon began to mingle with that of envy at the pomp of otho 
the fair greek it was said weary of her lord lavished her smiles on others the young and the fair were always most acceptable at the castle and above all her guilty love for the templar scarcely affected disguise otho alone appeared unconscious of the rumor and though he had begun to neglect his bride he relaxed not in his intimacy with the templar it was noon and the greek was sitting in her bower alone with her suspected lover the rich perfumes of the east mingled with the fragrance of flowers and various luxuries unknown till then in those northern shores gave a soft and effeminate character to the room i tell thee said the greek petulantly that he begins to suspect that i have seen him watch thee and mutter as he watched and play with the hilt of his dagger better let us fly ere it is too late for his vengeance would be terrible were it once aroused against us ah why did i ever forsake my own sweet land for these barbarous shores there love is not considered eternal nor inconstancy a crime worthy death peace pretty one said the templar carelessly thou knowest not the laws of our foolish chivalry thinkest thou i could fly from a knight's halls like a thief in the night why verily even the red cross would not cover such dishonor if thou fearest that thy dull lord suspects let us part the emperor hath sent to me from frankfort ere evening i might be on my way thither and i left to brave the barbarian's revenge alone is this thy chivalry nay prate not so wildly answered the templar surely when the object of his suspicion is gone thy woman's art and thy greek wiles can easily allay the jealous fiend do i not know thee glycera why thou wouldst fool all men save a templar and thou cruel wouldst thou leave me said the greek weeping how shall i live without thee the templar laughed slightly can such eyes ever weep without a comforter but farewell i must not be found with thee to-morrow i depart for frankfort we shall meet again as soon as the door closed on the templar the greek rose and pacing the room said selfish selfish how could i ever trust him yet i dare not brave otho alone surely it was his step that disturbed us in our yesterday's interview nay i will fly i can never want a companion she clapped her hands a young page appeared she threw herself on her seat and wept bitterly the page approached and love was mingled with his compassion why weepest thou dearest lady said he is there aught in which conrad's services services ah thou hast read his heart his devotion may avail otho had wandered out the whole day alone his vassals had observed that his brow was more gloomy than its wont for he usually concealed whatever might prey within some of the most confidential of his servitors he had conferred with and the conference had deepened the shadow of his countenance he returned at twilight the greek did not honor the repast with her presence she was unwell and not to be disturbed the gay templar was the life of the board thou carriest a sad brow to-day sir otho said he good faith thou hast caught it from the air of liebenstein i have something troubles me answered otho forcing a smile which i would fain impart to thy friendly bosom the night is clear and the moon is up let us forth alone into the garden the templar rose and he forgot not to gird on his sword as he followed the knight 
Otho led the way to one of the most distant terraces that overhung the Rhine. Sir Templar, said he, pausing, answer me one question on thy knightly honor. Was it thy step that left my lady's bower yester eve at Vesper? Startled by so sudden a query, the wily Templar faltered in his reply. The red blood mounted to Otho's brow. Nay, lie not, sir knight. These eyes, thanks to God, have not witnessed, but these ears have heard from others of my dishonor. As Otho spoke, the Templar's eyes, resting on the water, perceived a boat rowing fast over the Rhine. The distance forbade him to see more than the outline of two figures within it. She was right, thought he. Perhaps that boat already bears her from the danger. Drawing himself up to the full height of his tall stature, the Templar replied haughtily, Sir Otho of Sternfels, if thou hast deigned to question thy vassals, obtain from them only an answer. It is not to contradict such minions that the knights of the temple pledge their word. Enough, cried Otho, losing patience, and striking the Templar with his clenched hand. Draw, traitor, draw. Alone in his lofty tower, Warbeck watched the night deepen over the heavens, and communed mournfully with himself. To what end, thought he, have these strong affections, these capacities of love, this yearning after sympathy been given me? Unloved and unknown, I walk to my grave, and all the nobler mysteries of my heart are forever to be untold. Thus musing, he heard not the challenge of the warder on the wall, or the unbarring of the gate below, or the tread of footsteps along the winding stair. The door was thrown suddenly open, and Otho stood before him. Come, he said, in a low voice trembling with passion, come, I will show thee that which shall glad thine heart. Twofold is Leoline avenged. Warbeck looked in amazement on a brother he had not met since they stood in arms against the other's life and he now saw that the arm that Otho extended to him dripped with blood, trickling drop by drop upon the floor. Come, said Otho, follow me. It is my last prayer. Come for Leoline's sake. Come. At that name Warbeck hesitated no longer. He girded on his sword, and followed his brother down the stairs and through the castle gate. The porter scarcely believed his eyes when he saw the two brothers, so long divided, go forth at that hour alone, and seemingly in friendship. Warbeck arrived at that epoch in the feelings when nothing stuns, followed with silent steps the rapid strides of his brother. The two castles, as you are aware, are scarce a stone's throw from each other. In a few minutes Otho paused at an open space in one of the terraces of Sternfels, on which the moon shone bright and steady. Behold, he said in a ghastly voice, Behold, and Warbeck saw on the sward the corpse of the Templar, bathed with the blood that even still poured fast and warm from his heart. Hark, said Otho, he it was who first made me waver in my vows to Leoline. He persuaded me to wed yon whited falsehood. Hark, he who had thus wronged my real love, dishonored me with my faithless bride, and thus, 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 as grinding his teeth, he spurned again and again the dead body of the Templar. Thus, Leoline and myself are avenged. And thy wife, said Warbeck, pityingly, fled, fled with a hireling page. It is well. 
she was not worth the sword that was once belted on by Leoline. The tradition, dear Gertrude, proceeds to tell us that Otho, though often menaced by the rude justice of the day for the death of the Templar, defied and escaped the menace. On the very night of his revenge, a long and delirious illness seized him. The generous Warbeck forgave, forgot all, save that he had once been consecrated by Leoline's love. He tended him through his sickness, and when he recovered, Otho was an altered man. He forswore the comrades he had once courted, the revels he had once led. The halls of Sternfels were desolate as those of Liebenstein. The only companion Otho sought was Warbeck, and Warbeck bore with him. They had no topic in common. For one subject Warbeck at least felt too deeply ever to trust himself to speak. And yet did a strange and secret sympathy reunite them. They had at least a common sorrow. Often they were seen wandering together by the solitary banks of the river, or amidst the woods, without apparently interchanging word or sign. Otho died first, and still in the prime of youth, and Warbeck was now left companionless. In vain the imperial court wooed him to its pleasures. In vain the camp proffered him the oblivion of renown. Ah, could he tear himself from a spot where morning and night he could see afar amidst the valley the roof that sheltered Leoline, and on which every copse, every turf reminded him of former days. His solitary life, his midnight vigils, strange scrolls about his chamber, obtained him by degrees the repute of cultivating the darker arts, and shunning, he became shunned by all. But still it was sweet to hear from time to time of the increasing sanctity of her in whom he had treasured up his last thoughts of earth. She it was who healed the sick, she it was who relieved the poor, and the superstition of that age brought pilgrims from afar to the altars that she served. Many years afterwards a band of lawless robbers, who ever and anon broke from their mountain fastness to pillage and to desolate the valleys of the Rhine, who spared neither sex nor age, neither tower nor hut, nor even the houses of God himself, laid waste the territories round Bornhofen, and demanded treasures from the convent. The abbess of the bold lineage of Rudesheim refused the sacrilegious demand. The convent was stormed, its vassals resisted, the robbers inured to slaughter, won the day. Already the gates were forced, when a knight, at the head of a small but hardy troop, rushed down from the mountainside and turned the tide of the fray. Wherever his sword flashed, fell a foe. Wherever his war-cry sounded was a space of dead men in the thick of the battle. The fight was won, the convent saved. The abbess and the sisterhood came forth to bless their deliverer. Laid under an aged oak, he was bleeding fast to death. His head was bare, and his locks were gray, but scarcely yet with years. One only of the sisterhood recognized that majestic face. One bathed his parched lips. One held his dying hand, and in Leoline's presence passed away the faithful spirit of the last lord of Liebenstein. Oh, said Gertrude through her tears, surely you must have altered the facts. Surely, surely it must have been impossible for Leoline, with a woman's heart, to have loved Otho more than Warbeck. 
my child said vane so think women when they read a tale of love and see the whole heart bared before them but not so act they in real life when they see only the surface of character and pierce not its depths until it is too late end of section 6